0: All right, good morning. Hope everyone's doing well. Um, Before we get started, I just wanted to share a couple quick thoughts about uh, something significant that happened this week. As I'm sure most of you have heard, uh, last Wednesday uh, we lost one of the most prominent Christian leaders and evangelists of the last century. He uh, Billy Graham passed away just shy of 100 years old and uh, went home to be with the Lord. Um, it's been interesting for me over the last couple days to read articles about his life and uh, to see the response, both from uh, Christians and from the secular uh, world, uh, to the life of Billy Graham. And uh, as I've reflected on his life, you know, I've, I've thought about how, well, it's certainly very important for us as human beings, never to revere other human beings or put them on the same level with God. All human beings uh, are flawed. Everybody makes mistakes. Uh, but I think we should be very thankful right now for the life of Billy Graham um, and all of the ways that, that God worked through him. I was uh, reading some, some stats that people tried to compile about his life, and, and they estimate that his total audience, the number of people that probably heard him over the course of his lifetime, was 2.2 billion people. And um, it's estimated that 3.2 million people responded at one of his rallies to an invitation to accept Jesus Christ. Um, so that is, that is a, uh, a massive, massive impact. And Graham was able to serve as a spiritual mentor to all the presidents from Truman to Obama, every one of them, Uh, which, you know, is remarkable when you think about how those presidents represent both sides of the political aisle, and yet they were invited, um, or they invited Graham uh, to serve as, as a mentor and advisor to them. So, you know, this morning, I don't encourage us to idolize Billy Graham, but I certainly encourage us to to celebrate uh, his life. And uh, I also encourage us to be encouraged by his life because, you know, Graham was certainly a gifted guy, but if there was one thing that he had more than anything else, I would say what he possessed was a willingness to be used by God and a belief in the power of the gospel. You know, a, a belief that if you presented the simple gospel, God loves you and he sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins, that if people were given an opportunity to respond to that, God would work. And he did. And so I encourage all of us to to be encouraged ourselves as we reflect on his life, to believe in the power of the gospel Um, and to to make part of our life's aim uh, extending that invitation people to come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All right, well, we are in week four of our Messages in the Miracles series, where we're looking at Jesus' miraculous signs in the book of John. And this week we're looking at what's known as the healing at the pool, which comes directly after the miracle we looked at last week, the healing of the official son. So if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 1. Now, one of the themes that we've been seeing so far in our series is that there are elements of these stories that defy expectations. You know, we have a certain idea of the way things are going to go in these stories, and almost always, something happens that upsets our expectations. And I think most of us have an expectation that if we're going to hear a story about Jesus healing someone, it's going to go something like this. Someone is in need of healing. They ask Jesus for healing. Jesus looks on them with compassion and says, You are healed. The person is happy. And then the, then the person becomes a witness for Jesus. Right? That's kind of the the, the flow of events that we expect. But if that's the story that we are expecting this morning, uh, we're gonna be a little disappointed and surprised, maybe, uh, because this story deviates from what I just described in some significant ways. But I think it has some very, in, very important things to teach us through those deviations, through those surprises. Uh, so we're gonna get to that in a moment, but let's not waste any time. Uh, starting in verse 1 of John chapter 5. Let me say a quick prayer before we get into this. Lord, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for this church. Uh, I I thank you for the opportunity to look at your word together. And Father, I pray right now that you would just quiet our hearts and that you would still our minds and help us to shut out all distractions and just focus on your word. Um, Lord, we believe that In your word, there is power, that there is truth, and uh, we ask that you would uh, uncover that truth for us, that you would reveal it to us, and that your Holy Spirit would use it to work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Quick reminder, I said this last week and I think it's worth repeating. We, We sometimes read details like this in the Bible and our eyes start to glaze over and we start to tune out a little bit. But we need to remember that details like this are super important because details like this remind us that we are reading a historical story. Okay, this is not a fable, this is not an allegory. This, this is written in such a way that the early audience to this gospel would hear these details and go, oh yeah, I know about that place. You know, it's kind of like if I said, you know, Jesus uh, went to uh, Store Center on 195. Uh, now, in, at Store Center, there's a circular green with some tables that are red around it. Some of you, as I'm saying that right now, you're like, oh yeah, I know that place. You know, it's across from the Mooyah. <laughs> and... This, when, when these words were first read for many people who knew, who were familiar with Jerusalem, it would do the same thing for them. And it would help them to take this, this story seriously and help them to realize that this is a reliable historical uh, document that's being read. So keep that in mind. These are real places, real people. This is not like Mount Olympus or Mordor or anything like that. Real, real places, real people. Continuing. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now we're going to find out a little while later why exactly these people come to this spot, but I'll I'll let you know right now. The reason is because people believed that this pool had healing properties. And they said that at certain points the water would stir on its own. And if you got into the water when the water was stirring, then you could get healed. Now, just to be clear, uh, the Bible itself doesn't tell us whether or not the the pool actually had healing properties. It doesn't say one way or the other, but the point is the people thought it had healing properties, and that was why they were there, Uh, just as, you know, some people today when they're sick will travel far distances to go to some miracle hot spring or something like that. They might not be sure whether or not it actually works, but they're willing to to try it because they want to be healed, and, and they're desperate for healing. So, this place is kind of like that. Okay, continuing. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. think about that. Especially in that day and age when being disabled, severely disabled, basically meant that you were completely and totally dependent on people around you uh, for help. Now, Jesus... Uh, by most scholars' estimates, was crucified around age 33. And he started his ministry at 30. So this guy has been disabled longer than Jesus has been alive. You know, on that first Christmas night when Jesus was laid in the manger, the infant Jesus, this guy was already disabled and was probably already sitting around this pool. It's a sobering thought. All right. All <clears> right. <throat> Continuing, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, do you want to get well? Now, that's kind of a strange question, isn't it? Do you want to get well? I mean, the guy's severely physically disabled. He's sitting by the pool that's supposed to heal disabled people, and Jesus asks him, do you want to not be disabled? It's kind of like if you were in the hospital and the doctor came in and said, uh, do, you, do you want to not be sick? Well, yeah, I'm here, obviously. <laughs> in fact, if you were in, a, in the hospital and somebody came to you and said that, you might get the, the, get the feeling that the doctor actually doubts that you want to be well. And that might make you a little bit defensive. You know, you might be like, of course I don't want to be sick. What what are you suggesting? You think I want to be sick? I mean, my health insurance makes it difficult for me to get the coverage that I need, and you might start saying things like that, but you'd be like, of course I don't want to be sick. And I think we see the man getting a little bit defensive in his response to Jesus, just as we might be defensive if we were in that situation. Listen to what he says. Sir, the invalid replied. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So in other words, it's not my fault, Jesus. It's a very, it's a very interesting response. I want us to hear the defensiveness in that, in that response. Notice the man doesn't give the response that we think he should, which is yes. (laughs) Yes, I want to get well. Instead, he seems really, really concerned about making it clear that the reason that he is in this situation is not his fault. Do you hear that? You agree with me? Okay. I want us to to notice that defensiveness and, and I want us to keep that point in mind because it's gonna become relevant later. But for now, just store that in your brain, okay? he, He has a defensive response. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. 38 years as an invalid, but at the command of Jesus, just like that, he's on his feet. Jesus doesn't even help him down to the pool. He's like, forget about the pool. You don't need the pool. I'm better than the pool. Just on your feet. And in in an instant, he's cured. All right, continuing. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. All right. (laughs) Time out here. Okay, the man who has just been healed has been spotted by... Uh, the Jews. John calls these people the Jews. Now it's important for us to recognize when John says that this, he doesn't just mean Jews in general. Okay? Jesus is a Jew. The man who was just healed was most likely, almost certainly, a Jew. But the phrase the Jews is a shorthand for referring to the Jewish religious leaders. Okay? That's who, who this is talking about. Now, the Jewish re- religious leaders had a list of 39 activities that you weren't supposed to do on the sabbath Uh, because god had very clearly said in his word that once a week there's a sabbath day where we are supposed to take a rest that was clear but what was not entirely clear to the religious leaders was well what counts as work if we're supposed to rest not do any work we have to decide what is work And so they came up with this list of 39 activities that were prohibited because they thought these activities counted as work. And one of the things on that list was, you can't carry things. So, we need to recognize that when Jesus says to this man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, he is not just saying, be healed. Okay, He is saying that. But what he's also saying to the man is, Break one of the Sabbath rules. Now, to be clear, uh, he is not saying break one of God's rules, but he is saying break one of the religious establishment's rules. And I really like this. I I think we need to (laughs) notice what Jesus is doing here. When Jesus says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, he's also saying, I want you to be set free from man-made religion. I want you to be set free from man-made religion. And that is really good news. uh, Because, boy, did people then need to be set free from that. People need to be set free from that that now, but people really needed to be set free from that then. Because as this story shows us, there were people who were so enslaved by man-made religion that a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, could be healed. And their first response wasn't, praise God, you can carry your mat. Their response was, how dare you carry your mat? That's insane. That's ridiculous. I mean, it would be funny if it wasn't so evil. It's terrible. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm just so thankful that when God in the flesh came to earth, He stood against that kind of thinking. He said, no, that is not the kind of attitude that pleases God. So if you're taking notes, you'll notice that you have an outline that says messages in the miracle. Well, this is the first message that I see in this miracle that I want want us to notice. Jesus wants to set us free from man-made religion. Now again, uh, I want to be very clear what I mean by that. I am not saying that Jesus is against all rules, or all religion, as we might call it. Uh, God's laws are beautiful. They're what we need to, to guide our, law, our lives. And, and the religious traditions that ultimately come from God and the spirit of God are beautiful as well. And we should honor them and, 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 and uh, appreciate them. But Jesus wants to set us free from the rules and regulations that are ultimately from human beings, not from God. Now, in some, in some churches, it would be appropriate for me to stop on this point and spend the next 30 minutes <laughs> talking about this. But honestly, I don't see our church as, as a church that really needs to have this point hammered home. I don't think we're a church that's all about insisting on creating and following unnecessary rules and regulations. I just, I just don't see that. This is, this is not the kind of church where people are gonna care more about whether someone is wearing a hat in service uh, than whether or not said hat wearer is actually being shown the love of God, right? <laughs> but there are some churches where that happens, and, and this would be, those churches would be ones where I would want to sit on this for a while and, and hammer that home. Um, but I think here that would be preaching to the choir. So for now, I just want to say, let's celebrate the good news that Jesus wants to set us free Uh, from that kind of thinking, and and that's what he's doing here. All right, Uh, continuing in verse 11. 11. But, the man replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? Notice, they don't say, who is this fellow who miraculously healed you after 38 years? They don't even care. All they're fixated on is, who is this guy who broke one of our rules? They're so blinded by their their man-made religion that they can't even appreciate a man being healed after 38 years. But uh, the man who was healed is unable to give them what they want Uh, because, as we're told, uh, the man who was healed had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. So this man had been healed by Jesus, but he had never been given Jesus' identity. He had never been given a name or anything like that. And by the time the the man was talking to the the religious leaders, Jesus was long gone. All right, now I said that this story upsets expectations. Well, it's the part that we're about to look at now that is the part that I had in mind the most when I said that. So brace yourself for this, okay? This is, this is something else. Verse 14. Later, Jesus found him, the man who was healed, at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. All right. Do you see what just happened there? The man who had just been healed, the man who had been disabled for 38 years, and who had just been miraculously healed by Jesus, just threw Jesus under the bus. You know, at first, when I noticed this, I thought, no, that can't be what this is saying. I must be misunderstanding it. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized, no, I'm, I'm almost positive that that's what this is saying. It says that after the man and Jesus have this reunion, the man, now knowing Jesus' identity, goes back to the Jews and tells them, Jesus is the one who healed me. Now, if we read this story carelessly, we might read that and think, oh, how nice. The man went and started being a witness for Jesus. He started telling everyone, Jesus healed me. But we have to notice who he tells. It's the same people who just a little while ago were angrily looking for Jesus. This man has just gone and sold Jesus out. He's betrayed him. Now, why would this man throw Jesus under the bus? Why in the world would he do that? This man who's been healed. Well, here is my best guess, and I'm going to explain Why? why I think this, but my best guess is because this man was not open to change or correction. Uh, And that is what Jesus was calling him to. So look at verse 14 again. See what Jesus says to him. See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus tries to correct him here. He tries to get him to change. Now, when Jesus says this, I, I, I don't think we should understand him as, as saying, "Don't ever do a single sin again, or if you do, then things even worse than your your previous disablement will happen to you." That would be an impossible command to abide by. I mean, by by the afternoon, he would be disabled again, and you know, have I don't know uh, sores all over his body or something like that. Because surely he would have done some sin. He would have had some impure thought or something like that. What Jesus is saying here when he says stop sinning, he's not just referring to uh, sin in a general sense, but he's saying you need to leave your lifestyle of sin. He's saying there needs to be some attitude adjustment, some sort of lifestyle shift, something in your core that has to change that hasn't happened yet. It's like saying you need to get saved. (laughs) You need to have a conversion moment. You need to stop sinning. You have to have this shift. Something is supposed to happen in your heart, and it hasn't happened yet. And if it doesn't happen, something in the future is coming that for you is going to be far worse than ever being handicapped. So Jesus asks him to change, but what's the first thing he does after Jesus tells him that? He goes and reports them to the authorities. And you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like spite. <laughs> I think he's mad that Jesus wants him to change. And I know it seems hard to believe that someone would be spiteful after being miraculously healed by Jesus, but when we're familiar with human nature, it's not really that unbelievable. Okay, because we love a Jesus who's going to heal us and take away our sickness and all of that, but a Jesus who wants us to change, a Jesus who calls us you know, to pick up our cross and follow him, a Jesus who challenges us in some way. We're not as keen on that. Now, you might be thinking, well, Ryan, I don't know if I'm totally sold on this idea that the man was acting spitefully. I don't know if I'm totally sold um, that, that he didn't want to change. Well, just in case you need a little bit more convincing, remember back to what he said when Jesus asked him if he wanted to get well. Remember the point I made? He was defensive. Okay, he didn't say yes. His answer was basically, it's not my fault that I'm not well. I'm doing everything I can do. It's everybody else's fault. You know, Maybe the reason that he was so defensive is because he didn't want to change. Maybe he was worried that if he was asked, do you want to get well? And he had answered yes, then Jesus might have said, well, there's some things you need to do. And, and he didn't want to hear it. You know, if the doctor comes to you in the hospital and says, Do you want to get well? That question is either an absurd question, because, yeah, of course you want to get well, or it's a setup for some advice you might not want to hear. <laughs> you know, do you want to get well? Yes, doctor, of course I want to get well. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Okay, you're going to have to stop smoking. You know, you're going to have to stop drinking as much. You're going to have to start exercising. You're going to have to start eating better. You know, maybe the reason the man at the pool got defensive is because he didn't want to change. So I think that when you put it all together, okay, Jesus', is, I mean, uh, the man's response to Jesus' question, do you want to get well, plus his response to Jesus trying to correct him, stop sinning, you take those two things together, you have a pretty strong argument that this is a man who doesn't want to change. He's not open to correction. He's not willing to let Jesus be the Lord of his life. And what Jesus wants this man to realize is that real healing hasn't happened until he's willing to change. Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, what does he mean by something worse? What could be worse than going back to being disabled in the first century? Well, in those days, that would be one of the worst things that you could think of, right? Because in those days, he would have been completely dependent on other people to feed him and bathe him. Well, what's worse than any physical disability is a disabled soul, a sick, corrupt soul, a soul that is unwilling to change. And what Jesus is saying is that if this man is not willing to give up his lifestyle of sin, if he is not willing to change, and if, he, if he is not willing Uh, to consider God's correction and to be open to that, then the physical healing that he's received is going to be worthless. Because whatever happens to the health of his body, his soul is still at stake. You know, maybe this morning you really want healing for something. Could be a, a physical illness or condition. There's nothing wrong with wanting healing for that. I encourage you to ask God for healing. And I encourage you to recognize that God does have power to heal, just as Jesus dramatically demonstrates in this story. And I encourage you to recognize that God's ultimate will for creation is a world without sickness and death. But I also encourage you to recognize, I encourage all of us to recognize, that something much more important than whether or not we are physically healed is whether or not we are open to God's correction. Uh, And this brings me to the second Message in the miracle. This is the one I really want to emphasize. This is the one that, if you don't remember anyone, anything else, I hope you remember this one. It's being open to God's correction is better than being physically healed. Being open to God's correction is better than being physically healed. And that's not because we shouldn't want physical healing. Physical healing is great. God physically heals sometimes. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, But if we're not open to God's correction, we have a spiritual sickness that can have far greater consequences than physical sickness, and that needs to take priority. Okay, two more quick messages in the miracle. We're going to go through these pretty fast. Number three, who God heals physically is unpredictable. Who God heals physically is unpredictable. Okay, we have a, t- a tendency to want to create some sort of formula for who is going to get healed physically by God. We want to say, well, if A, B, and C conditions are met, then said person is going to be healed. Now, I believe that chances of healing probably increase under certain conditions. And I'm very interested to hear what uh, Chuck Redfern is going to say when he gives seminary, uh, his seminar in a, in a few weeks on that subject. But when it comes to trying to create hard and fast rules about who God is going to heal, which, which conditions have to be met, there is an, an inherently unpredictable nature to things. And, and this story really demonstrates this. Because pretty much any condition people have ever tried to impose for when and how healing is going to happen is violated in this story. Okay? People will say, well, in order for God to heal you, you have to have faith in Jesus. Did this guy have faith in Jesus? He didn't even know who Jesus was, right? When Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? He didn't didn't say, oh yes, I want to get well. Can you heal me? Nothing. It was just, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And he was healed. People will say, well, in order for God to heal you, you have to ask him. This guy didn't ask Jesus to heal him. Jesus came to him, not the other way around. People will say, in order for God to heal you, uh, you have to get rid of the sin in your life. Did this guy get rid of the sin in his life? not according to Jesus, stop sinning, he tells him. People will say, in order for God to heal you, you have to be willing to give your life to him. But this guy wasn't willing to do that. He threw Jesus under the bus. Now, to make this even harder to believe, consider for a moment that this guy was sitting among probably dozens of other disabled people, people that wanted healing. Think about that. And as far as we know, Jesus only picked this guy in that moment to heal. Why this guy? Why would, why would Jesus pick this guy? Well, here's the answer. I don't know. <laughs> and neither do you, and neither does anybody else. This guy was healed because God decided to do it. What the reasons were beyond that, we can't know. I do think there were reasons. I just don't think they're accessible to me or you. From our perspective, there is an unpredictability uh, to many of God's actions, but especially when it comes to physical healing. Now, that might seem like bad news, but there's a positive way of looking at it, which is Healing is always a possibility. Even when you would least expect it, uh, God's power may break through. You know, you don't need to wait for your Buddhist brother-in-law to profess faith in Jesus before you start praying for him to be healed. God can still do that. All right, one last message in the miracle, and this is a simple one. Uh, But I think it's really important to say because it is primary and it is undeniable. It's actually the message in every miracle that we're going to look at in this series. Uh, And it is the message that makes all the other messages matter. It is the message that Jesus is Lord. Now, you might ask, okay, well, how does that come through in this miracle? Well, the obvious way is because he does this miraculous healing, right? No no ordinary man can just make somebody who's been disabled for 38 years stand up and walk. But there's another reason this message comes through. As we know, Jesus did this on the Sabbath, right? And this was actually a very, very deliberate thing on Jesus' part. Because Jesus was saying something remarkable about himself in doing that. See, the Jews recognized that even though people weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, there was one person who was still at work on the Sabbath. God, right? Because if God ever stopped working, they recognized that the world would just cease to exist. Everybody recognized that on the Sabbath, babies were still born, people still died, plants still bloomed. And they recognize that the only way that creation continues to function, the only way that it it, it exists at all is if God sustains it moment by moment. So they would say, yes, we are all supposed to take a rest on the Sabbath, but the one who keeps working is God. And so when Jesus works on the Sabbath, when he performs a miracle on the Sabbath, he is also saying, I am God. And if you think that's a stretch, Look at what happens in verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My Father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. You hear what he's doing there. He's like, God is always working, and, and I too am working. Hint, hint. You know, <laughs> wink wink. You know, and 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 the Jews, the Jews got the hint. They knew what he was saying. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know, some people will try to say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He only talked about being the son of God, which isn't the same of God. We're all sons of God. But don't buy that when you hear that. That's That's not true. When people say that, it's because they don't understand the significance of Jesus' actions in his cultural context. For those who who were Jewish in those days, it was very clear what Jesus was saying. Jesus was making a claim to to authority that was a level of authority that belonged to God and God alone. All right. so talked about a lot of stuff this morning. Uh, And as we close, I'm going to put up Those four messages in the miracle, again, Jesus wants to set us free from man-made religion. Being open to God's correction is better than being physically healed. Who God heals physically is unpredictable, and Jesus is the Lord. Uh, I'm going to leave that up there, and in a little bit, uh, the band's going to come back up. We're going to have a little moment of reflection. And I'm just going to ask you to reflect on these things and to ask yourself, what is one response that I can make this week so, any one of these four things. Um, there's a lot of possibilities there. You know, maybe you need to turn from man-made religion. Maybe you've gotten tied up in rules and regulations that have nothing to do with God's will, but have to do with cultural pressure and that sort of thing. Uh, maybe you've been focusing on the letter of the law rather than on the spirit of the law. So, that's one possibility. Um, Maybe you've wanted God's healing or his blessing in some way. But if you're honest, you're not really open to God's correction or leading in your life. You know, Maybe you need to, this morning, finally take a step to say, God, you know what, I am willing to start making changes in my life. I realize that the health of my soul is more important than the health of my physical body or my bank account. And maybe you've never recognized Jesus as Lord. Maybe you've never accepted him. And finally doing that could be one way to respond to the message in this miracle. So I just encourage you, let God lead you as you reflect. And if what you're reflecting on stirs something in you, uh, I encourage you to come and receive prayer during communion. Somebody will be in the back of the room would be happy to pray for you for whatever you, uh, you need prayer for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when you came to this earth as a man, um, you surprised so many people and you challenged ways of thinking that um, enslaved people and um, brought brought grief and and, uh, a lack of peace in their lives. Father, we pray that uh, you would challenge those same unhealthy thoughts and practices in our own life. And God, I pray that we would be open to being corrected by you. I pray that we would be open to change I pray that we would desire to be led by your spirit, Lord, that we would recognize that you love us and want what's best for us. And there is power for healing from you. God, we pray that you would would heal us physically of our afflictions, just like you, you healed this man in such a miraculous way. But more than that, Lord, we pray for healing in our souls. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.